Let's go. Hello, and welcome to Sustain Open Source Design. Is it Sustain Our Design? No, it's Sustain Open Source Design. Yes, yes. Sustain Open Source Design. SOS. <laughs> what are you <laughs> Hello and welcome to Sustaining Open Source Design, the podcast where we talk about the confluence of open source and design and, of course, sustainability. How can we keep everything running the way it's running? Never really sure if this is called sustain open source design or sustaining open source design. I think that the latter makes more sense, but this is all just kind of rambling. I'm the only host today, so I'm Richard Litauer. Hello, everyone. It is great to be here. And our guest today was brought on by Errol Fox. Errol is amazing. And he was at both FOSTEM and State of Open. So we have seen him recently. This is the illustrious Mike Gifford from Civic Actions. Mike, how are you doing today? Fine, Richard, yourself? Doing good. I'm glad to be here. If you don't hear a pigeon, that's good. I can't hear any pigeons. We're excellent. Excellent. Okay, cool. There was a pigeon in my recording studio, but I think I got it. Mike is a senior strategist at Civic Actions and a thought leader on digital accessibility in the public sector. Previously, he was the founder and president of Open Concept Consulting, web development agency specializing in building open source solutions for the open web. Open Concept was an impact-driven company and a certified B corporation, and it's like Civic Actions. Open Concept worked extensively with Drupal. Mike was also part of the government of Canada's Open Source Advisory Board. I want to hear more about that. Mike spearheaded accessibility improvements in Drupal since 2008 and officially became a Drupal core accessibility maintainer in 2012. And as a long-term environmentalist, Mike has found ways to integrate his passions for the web and the planet. His most significant contributions have been in the development of the Sustainable Web Manifesto, and adding an open source perspective to Tim Frick's book, Designing for Sustainability. So, Mike, that is a lot. You have done amazing things. That is really cool. Tell me what you think about when you think about sustainability, because there's two definitions that we use on this podcast. We're here to talk about open source sustainability, but you obviously often think about the other type, too. I'm curious about your thoughts about the dichotomy and if there is one. So sustainability is a word that is too loose and can be applied to too many things, much like accessibility. Like accessibility also is something that people use in a variety of different ways in the English language. But absolutely, you need to have projects that are sustainable and that they need to have enough resources in order to get enough people and enough ideally paid people who can go off and keep the project running and keep the ideas and the community around it continuing to grow and evolve with the internet. But also the impact on the planet is one that really needs to be factored in. So what is the environmental impact of the product running in the cloud on the different people's desktops and portable devices? For that matter, on trying to fly people together for conferences like FOSTEM and the State of Open, all these things have an environmental impact. And, and yet they're critical to actually managing the software and having the software do what it's intended to do. If you're trying to build that community and sustain that community, there's an energy that is required in order to make that happen. And so just being conscious of that, I think, is a really important thing. So I'm curious, you're talking about sustainability and keeping things going. You said you were the founder and president of Open Concept Consulting. Is that still going or have you moved on entirely to civic actions? I've closed down Open Concept and now basically, you know, yeah, 100% working with civic actions for the last two years. And it's been great. 
you're running a business is a lot of work, but it's nice to be able to focus in on things that I'm passionate about and not have to worry about HR and issues of financing taxes and all the other nonsense you have to deal with when you're the owner of a small business and have to be both chief cook and bottle washer. I feel you on that one. That's one of the reasons I work at Open Source Collective now. It's just a bit easier. Tell me what Civic Actions does. So Civic Actions is a a web development firm that does a lot of work with both open source and Drupal, as well as HCD. We primarily work in the government space. We're largely focused on the U.S. government. We work with VA.gov, CMS.gov, NSF.gov. And as part of that, we're trying to work with the U.S. web design system and we support a Drupal theme for the U.S. WDS. We also have a large HCD team that's just looking at how to provide sustainable or create content and designs that are fitting for the government context and support our clients to build more user-friendly government websites. We're an impact-driven company so that we also work with the nonprofits as well. And then if there's a an alignment in terms of the skill sets that we have and the projects that others are interested in implementing, we're, we're happy to go up and to work on those. So you've obviously had experience before in the government. Can you tell me a bit about the Canadian Open Source Advisory Board that you're on? So that was an interesting effort to help find ways to change how government actually uses open source software within Canada. Unfortunately, a working group that no longer exists, but it was an interesting opportunity to try and bring together people that are trying to create more innovations and more collaboration within government to try and say, how do we shift the policies in government and make it more commonplace to go off and to use open source software? Unfortunately, during the pandemic, that whole sort of structure closed down and there hasn't been much evolution of that. And I think there's also been a more of a move within the government of Canada to adopting Office 365 and a Microsoft-based approach to the IT. So that is also something that isn't necessarily as forward-thinking as it was historically when there was more of an exploration of sharing code and techniques and processes with the general public. So obviously you're in Ottawa, which is the capital of Canada, but you mentioned that Civic Actions mainly works with the American government. I haven't been able to ask this question of other people before. Do you see a large difference between the approach towards open source from the Canadian government and the U.S. government? I know you just mentioned a switch to Office 365, but I'm just curious, like, what else have you noticed in terms of how they approach open source sustainability differently? I think there's a lot more focused effort around open source software with the U.S. government than there is for the Canadian government. I think that it does depend on having a clear leadership and a clear commitment to open source in order to go off and maintain that and to break down the barriers and the silos within government. There's a huge culture change that needs to happen from people working within their silos and rarely sharing with people outside of their group in a particular department, let alone sharing with the world on an open GitHub repository. So it takes a lot of effort to try and move people ahead. And the Canadian approach is very much being to sort of hire people to fill specific roles and to make sure that an advocate is or a developer is sitting in a position to implement a project. And that is some merit in some projects. But I think that the U.S. has taken a much better approach in terms of creating change within government in that there's a focus on hiring teams. It's much easier to hire a consulting company that has experience implementing open source software and is able to go off and to demonstrate success within and to implement success for government agencies. And then for the government agency to adopt that working project and be able to maintain that project over time. 
I think that's a much more successful approach within the U.S. government than what we've implemented here in Canada. That's fascinating. I really like this conversation, and I feel like this might be one of those episodes where I'm not sure which podcast I'm on, either the normal sustained podcast that focuses on these sorts of topics or the design podcast. But this is a design podcast, and so I want to ask, how do you see yourself as a designer in all of these conversations? I don't see myself as somebody that has a strong design sensibility. Don't ask me what colors to paint a wall or to make a logo. I have no skills in that ability. However, I've been working very closely with design and usability folks within the Drupal community for over a decade, trying to say, how do we try and make Drupal more accessible? How do we try and make sure that we're building in proper semantics into the user interface so that we can make sure that it's available for everyone and that we're leading the world as much as we can in in building a, a tool that is inclusive, not only on the front end where public people that a user would access it, but also on the back end. We wanted to make something that would allow users to be able to read the content, to edit the content, and also to administer the websites as well. So thinking about how we sort of structure a user interface, not just a visual user interface, but also an oral user interface. And that is useful for people who are screen reader users, but it's also increasingly important to people who are using oral interfaces through Alexa Home or Siri, or for that matter, through our cars and fridges. This is something that is is increasingly becoming part of our lives. And yet, so much of our design is focused on the visual instead of on the oral. Can you tell me where oral design interfaces mix with open source? A really interesting example of this is actually coming from Preston So, who's written a number of books, but one of his, I think his first one was looking at voice content and structuring that. And Preston is somebody I know from the Drupal community. He was initially, a lot of the research for that book was being done with an implementation for Alexa within a Drupal website for the state of Georgia. The state of Georgia has done some really amazing, innovative work around trying to implement Drupal as a platform for the state of Georgia and have done some excellent work on accessibility to try and evaluate the sort of best practices for the state. But they wanted to try and experiment with voice interaction. And a lot of the experience is something that Preston was able to consolidate into this book. I think that's probably one of the examples where that's being done. I don't know that many other instances. I mean, there certainly are all kinds of projects looking at engaging with voice, but I think it's still a fairly new area. So although there's some resources available for it and there's experiential information around this, I think that we haven't quite wrapped our heads around how to build a, an oral interface into our design systems, for example. When we talk about accessibility teams, we talk about people who often want to join these teams because they have an accessibility issue with themselves, right? So a lot of the times they're champions because either they're a family member or they themselves have issues dealing with these things. And so they join the open source community. I'm curious if that sounds accurate, A, because that's an assumption I'm making, and B, whether you've seen a buildup in people interested in accessibility because they want to have more oral approaches towards like usability and design. I'm just curious, have people joined because they want to help that out, say, in Drupal? When people are looking at accessibility, often there is some connection, some personal connection. For me, I was really influenced by a friend who has cerebral palsy, and he was able to educate me on disability rights and the value of seeing people as people and seeing beyond the disability. And 
then after a while, I realized that there was an opportunity to go off and to build that into the web practice that I was building at Open Concept. And I thought I could easily fix Drupal's accessibility issues. This is something that might take a couple patches, no big deal. We should be able to do this easily. Here we are 12 years later, and we're still nowhere near to actually eliminate the errors. And that's okay, because this is an evolving project, and the project and the user interface is changing over time. So that's not a problem. But it was a much more complicated thing than I expected. As far as the people coming to accessibility, I think if you see that one in five people has a disability, that it doesn't take very long for people to either real to have a disability if one or five people has one or have a close friend or family member that has a disability. And I think there's been more awareness in the last five years around the importance of accessibility. And that I think it's brought people into the space. And there's so many more resources available for this that have really made this something that's so much more accessible and to people and make made people more aware of what are the options that they can use to make their designs more accessible for people. And COVID obviously helped as well because suddenly everyone's online and digital is your first and in some cases for a number of years was the only method to go off and communicate with people. So that was a real change for our society. When you said you're not a designer, you mentioned, you know, I'm not the best for making your logo, but I see a lot of the work that you do as designing systems and trying to figure out how to understand how people can work best together at scale. And when I think about disabilities or accessibility, it's never a single issue, right? You just mentioned cerebral palsy. I have a good friend who's severely visually impaired, legally blind. There's all sorts of different approaches. How do you approach the intersectionality of the disability spectrum while keeping an open source team focused on the lowest hanging fruit? How do you keep it from going everywhere? I think that partly it's about trying to remember that this is about progress, not perfection. So about trying to go off and highlight what are those things that we can address easily so that we can at least be better than we were yesterday by making some changes over time. I think also looking at what are the things that are easy to do that are identifiable. So there's a number of different automated tools that can be useful. I really enjoy Accessibility Insights, which is actually a Microsoft tool. Before the pandemic, I had the opportunity to go visit the team in Redmond that was building Accessibility Insights and was blown away by what they were doing. They built a really nice tool that allows for people to easily evaluate web pages and also to share the results of that into Jira or other sort of platforms to be able to replicate the issues. So that's been great. But they're also using an accessibility engine called Axe, which was built by DQ. And this is an open source tool that Microsoft is contributing to and uh, is helping to improve over time. So you've got this lovely situation where Microsoft is both building an accessible tool and helping to improve the accessibility of another open source tool, and then to provide something that is a really nice best practice that they're pushing forward. And so, yeah, there's pieces within that that really highlight how complicated accessibility is. And it's not simply a matter of running the checker and saying you're done with Microsoft's accessibility insights. It's the first step, the fast pass is an automated test. But there's a whole sheet of manual tests that are described as part of this as well. And you're able to export the results of that into a format that, again, is easily shareable in a machine-readable format or simple HTML that can then help to push these issues ahead. I like that. Thank you. Another question that I feel like it's a very common question for me to ask because I have a linguistics background. You're in the lovely Twin Cities of Ottawa slash Get the Nil. How do you feel about French accessibility? 
And have you seen any stuff like that, especially within the Canadian government context? Multilingual accessibility is a really interesting challenge, partly because there's the language of page and language of parts that are often forgotten about. So if you have English strings in a French document, those should be identified so that a screen reader knows how to pronounce those. And that doesn't matter if it's a word or two, but it does matter if you're dealing with larger phrases. So trying to go off and to build your system and train your content authors to identify when there are languages that are not part of the dominant language of the page embedded in the content. So that can be easily expressed. And so many open source tools don't allow for that. I mean, so many open source tools are not properly multilingual. The other interesting challenge around accessibility is that it is predominantly English. This is a problem with the internet in general, but so many of the resources for accessibility are written in English and there might be translations for them, but you can't assume that there's going to be translations. And even things like the new WCAG standard, the new standard that's being released called WCAG 2.2, and all the work's being done to develop it in English. And then there'll be a point where people will contribute a French or a German or a Spanish version of that. But some countries may not want to go off and recognize that. So, for example, France, French is not the same as Quebecois French. So is a Quebec government wanting to go off and simply accept the Quebecois French or the Canadian government for that matter? Or do they want to provide their own translation for it? Or do they want to provide a separate locale that allows them to go off and identify their specific language for that? It hasn't been done particularly well. A lot of the documentation is still written in English. A lot of the tools are English. And I think we need to do a better job of reaching out to the majority world who are not conversing in English. I couldn't agree more, as always. That being said, I'm basically a unilingual person. So, you know, as a unilingual person, I've got lots of experience with multilingual websites, but also have practically no experience in how to go off and to converse in any other language than English. Which is not rare, even in Quebec. So having lived there for two years, that's very normal. It's true. Yeah, that's just how it is. I'm curious about how the work that you do with the accessibility work with Drupal interfaces right now with your work with civic actions. Are you finding that you're doing a lot of open source work in civic actions? So yes, I'm doing a lot of open source work with civic actions. So I'm helping to lead our accessibility practice area and trying to build a team of champions within a civic action that is able to go off and help us implement accessibility best practices for clients also working to engage with our clients to try and find better ways to try and shape the way that we are able to implement them. So many times people assume that all of the responsibility for implementing accessibility comes down to the vendor, but that's only part of the problem because both the client is responsible for setting our priorities and also the client is often responsible for producing the content. And if the client does not prioritize accessibility, then our priorities and the client's content will not align with Section 508, which is the set of requirements that is the law in the U.S. So that's definitely a challenge for people that I'm able to work on. Another thing that I work on is actually looking at procurement, because procurement is a huge challenge. There's a piece of accessibility, which is trying to shift left. How do you try and get accessibility thought of earlier in the design process? And often people stop at they might go to as far as the design system or the content management system, but they won't go to procurement. But procurement really sets the incentives for vendors to be able to act and the context with which digital tools are created. So without looking at procurement, you miss a lot. And so last year I was involved in creating a project called 
OpenACR, which is an open source implementation of something like an accessibility conformance report. And we built it on another open source tool that the WC3 had produced, create called the Web Content Accessibility Evaluation Methodology, or WKEM. So we were able to take this WC3 tool and build on it so that it provided a framework for the U.S. government to be able to replace the old VPAT system, which is the Voluntary Product Accessibility Template, and turn it into something that is from an outdated Word document into a modern web form that would help guide the authors of these tools through the process of identifying what the accessibility problems are that are known within a certain product or service. So this was a huge effort to try and shape the procurement process so that the U.S. government would be able to have more knowledge and confidence about the products and services that they're buying than they currently do. Standards are really useful if you have a large enough project that has a committee that's able to implement the standard. I'm curious, do you think that the onus is on open source projects to tell companies that are using them how to implement accessibility? What burden would you put on open source maintainers to make sure that the work that they do is accessible to more people down the road? I think there is a huge responsibility for open source maintainers to set an example. I think that most developers are lazy. They're not going to write something from scratch. They're going to go off and look for an existing set of code, and they're going to copy that code and then tweak the code to get it to do what they want it to do. That isn't a bad developer. That is a good development practice is to look for an example and to tweak an existing practice so that it meets your needs. So if you provide examples in your code that are not following accessibility best practices, then you're propagating that. We've done this in Drupal, and I think it's really quite useful to be really conscious of how we've implemented accessibility as part of the Drupal project and how we've made accessibility understood as a bug within the community. So whether you're creating a theme or a module, but if you've introduced a barrier for accessibility, that is understood as a bug and is looked down on in the community because Drupal is taking the responsibility of building accessible websites and place that on our community and not on the people who take and implement the project. And it is a bigger load, but we have a much bigger impact because we're driving more than a million websites around the world. So there's a responsibility to try and produce good examples for others to follow. I really like that a lot. That's something I hadn't thought about, and it's something that makes a lot of sense. And it leads on to a question which is pretty topical, which is ChatGPT doesn't have these sorts of things thought about it. And so I'm just curious, what do you think about how the future of getting copycat code from these massive AI engines, which is a bit easier sometimes than looking for the particular Stack Overflow code that you have. So it is a tool that can help developers. How do you think that's going to influence accessibility practices? ChatGPT and other generative AI is a really fascinating topic, and it has, since November, really fundamentally started to shift how we think about how we develop and what the opportunities are. And to some extent, I see there's a huge amount of potential. Like I've experimented with this enough to be able to see how it can help provide reasonably good answers and reasonably good models. The trouble is that generative AI is still looking back on the previous sort of history of code that's out there. So if you're looking back, this is why bias is such a big problem in these language models is that that is looking back on human society. And in the last hundred years, you have a lot of intrinsic bias that is written into our language 
that then the bot is going to be able to learn and then replicate and expand on that bias. If this is the society we want to maintain, then excellent. There's no need to change it. If we want to go off and build a more inclusive, diverse society, then that's a problem because all of those biases around disability and ableism and race and gender and culture are all encoded into the language that we're using to train our AIs. So it is an issue, but it's also an issue of like, how do you begin to license this content? If you're using chat GPT to try and generate content, how do you provide that attribution so that you're able to go off and give credit where credit is due? Because you're not writing all this code. You're actually leveraging a giant, which is chat GPT, which is helping you to generate it. And you still have the final responsibility for the implementation of that. But ultimately, a lot of open source is about acknowledging the giants in the room. And right now, there's, there's not a, an easy way to do that within chat GPT and other sort of large language models. Earlier, you said the onus is on the developer to make sure that their examples follow accessibility standards. Do you think the onus is on ChatGPT to do that? Or is it not still on the developers before they use that code in their product? Ultimately, the author of the code is the developer, is the person. We can't put on that responsibility on a bot. The final responsibility for any of the code used from any of these AIs has to be put on the human. We can't be deferring responsibility to the bots. A person has to be able to walk through the code that's given and evaluate if this is providing useful results, if this is something that is going to have an impact on humans, because the bot's not going to know this. The bot's not going to care. The human has to take the responsibility for how this code that they've generated with the assistance of AI is being implemented and what the impact of that is going to be. Now we can start using bots to try and help check and evaluate and to make sure that it's documented, it conforms to standards and whatnot. There's ways that we can improve upon this, but humans are ultimately the entity that has responsibility for anything that we put out into the world. I like to use the word responsibility instead of the use of the word blame. And one of the questions I have for you is that accessibility work is so heavy. It's just, it's really heavy work a lot of the time because people are like, I know I got to do that. How do you design interactions with teams and developers to show them that it's the responsibility they have that can be worthwhile and light without making everyone feel bad all the time? Part of what I try and do is make it easier for people. So in a, encouraging people to go into to use automated tools that are not likely to produce false positives. And that's one of the reasons that Axe is, is so useful is that it's really designed to avoid false positives. The other thing is that trying to not leave it to the end. For anything you sort of don't want to do when you push to the end is something that becomes drudgery and way more painful. If we were spell-checking documents only when we submitted them, if it was something that we didn't sort of edit as we went, it would be a lot more painful, but we've gotten used to in the last five or 10 years, or maybe longer actually, of having spell check built right into the editor. So most of us, if you're not writing in VI or Emacs, have a spell check that will go off and alert us if there's errors. That's a lot less painful than if you wait to the end of the process. If you can build accessibility into the work that we're doing, then it becomes just a process of like, oh, I missed that. I'll just, before this gets into the project, I'll fix this because I've run the tests as part of our CI/CD pipeline, and I've been able to identify that I missed adding a label to the input form, and that was caught before it went live. But if you're able to catch it in real time, just like you are with a spell check, it's less painful. But also trying to break it down into roles. So there's a lot of issues that are specific to certain issues, like 
the designer for different roles, like a designer will go and they should catch all the color contrast issues. They should catch all the sizing issues because that's a design issue that's tied to the visual design. And if they're creating Figma files, they should have accessibility annotations that are part of that so that the front end developer is able to know what the expectations are of the design for not only the visual implementation for a mouse user, but also for keyboard only users, for screen reader users, for people using tablets or smartphones. Like that should be built into the Figma design so that the front end developer doesn't have to guess on it. But again, if you have role specific implementations and are not sort of leaving it to the end of the process, everyone knows what they're responsible for, for their role, then it makes it much simpler because you have somebody who's able to take responsibility in real time to fix something that they're developing and not have to wait until after it's being caught by an auditor at the end of the process right before launch. I like the idea of doing that. A couple of weeks ago, I was in a meeting and I said, I just want to make what's scary boring. I really like that idea too. I know that's something I said, but it sort of shifted like, oh, okay, just make it easy. Just make it easy all the time. So you just build it into the workflow, right? So it's not something that you, it's like a little bit of, I see it also as a part of a definition of quality. Mm. If you think about your job, like everyone wants to do a quality job, but if you see accessibility as being somebody else's job, then it's not something you're going to think about. But if you've got your definition of bound built in to say that you're doing the accessibility checks that are related to your work before you hand it on to the next person, that you're considering how this is going to be used by the broadest range of users. So just sort of realizing that accessibility doesn't just affect a small number of people. It affects actually all of us at one point or another, because we're human. And part of the human condition is that we get old. And as we get older, our abilities degrade over time. Or even without that, if you've got a smartphone and you go outside on a beautiful day and you're trying to go off and read the light gray font, you know, and outside when you're trying to navigate to an address or something, it's quite difficult. So the more that you sort of see this as being something that's not for those poor other people who have disabilities that we need to accommodate, but just part of, I need to build something that works for the real world, for everyday usage. Most of us are not using technology only in our homes, in light controlled environments. There's permanent, temporary, and situational disabilities. And we need to think about when we're designing things, not just for people who have permanent disabilities, but also people who are, have broken their arm and are suddenly using their left hand to navigate through a website or they're getting that medication and it makes their eyes a little bit fuzzy or they've lost their glasses. Like there's all kinds of things that make people's interaction with digital interfaces less than perfect some of the time. So just building for that reality. I love that. I think the majority of my interactions with technology have been slightly less than perfect. It's like, it's never the perfect desk. It's never the perfect approach. Like there's always something slightly off. So I love that reframing. That's really good. Especially like when it's on a, the context of pigeons going off and oh my gosh. starting this uh, whole sort of process off. Yeah. And I mean, this mic should have, it probably has the right code to stop pigeons from being loud and being picked up. But there's always something. There's always something in the world. So design for that. Absolutely. Mike, this has been great. Where can people find more about you on the web? So the handle I've gone with is M Gifford, and I'm pretty much everywhere on that. I'm also on LinkedIn. I am still on Twitter, but I'm trying to use Mastodon more. So I'm on Mastodon Social still. So that's M Gifford at Mastodon Social. But yeah, you can find me by searching for Mike Gifford. I'm also at civicactions.com. We've also got an accessibility site that we've built up there that is all building open source tools as well and promoting open source and accessibility. And that's accessibility.civicactions.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. Don't leave yet. 
spotlights the part of the show at the very end where we do something a bit different. We point out people, projects, things that have helped us out in the past, that have helped our career, or we just think need some more light put on them. Mine today is going to be Susan Reed. Susan Reed does not have an online presence outside of Facebook, but she is my neighbor. And she has taught me more than anyone else about accessibility issues because she is legally blind. And that doesn't stop her from doing absolutely everything, including having a tiny letter and writing poems that are really nice from her kitchen table. So I highly suggest you subscribe to that. I'll put a link in the show notes if you like. Also, if you're ever in the Vermont area and you have a fiddle and you want to learn more about fiddling or find out where all the cool fiddle stuff is happening, Susan is the person to know. She knows absolutely everyone and everyone has stayed at her house. So thank you, Susan, for being an amazing human. Mike, what is your spotlight today? So I'm going to spotlight CO2.js, which is a project from the Green Web Foundation. And this is a project to try and help highlight the sustainability challenges of the web. And so this is a tool to try and evaluate the approximate level of carbon dioxide that's used in loading a web page. And it's an open source project. And I was able to meet with Mr. Chris Adams, who's one of the people behind it and doesn't be leading the charge at the Green Web Foundation at FOSDEM. So it's definitely an open source project that is helping to raise awareness about the sustainability impacts of our digital tools. Love that. Thank you so much. Mike, this has been great. Listeners, I hope you've also enjoyed it. If you have any thoughts on this podcast, please let us know. So first, you can do that by liking the podcast on Apple, Spotify, wherever you downloaded it, Android, wherever. B, what you could do is you can email me at richard at org or sosdpodcast at org. Those go to all the hosts. I'd like to know what questions I should have asked. Let me know what I should have said instead. People, again, never write here. So I'm trying with increasing desperation to have someone, anyone, just send an email. Just send an email. Or you can always reach us out, of course, on Twitter or Mastodon to St. OSS. That'd be great. We have a discourse at org as well as the show notes for this podcast, SOSD podcast.sustainoss.org and I believe that's it for today Mike thank you so much keep up the good work stay warm up there in Ottawa although summer is coming and uh, here, Richard. <laughs> yeah, be well thank you 